What's up, golf nerds? It's your host, Greg Gianfrido. I'd like to welcome everyone to episode two of Short Sighted. I wanted to take this time to apologize for the late release this week. Uh, I'm committed to pushing out great content. I wanted to make these shows as accessible as possible for everyone, um, and in doing so, uh, I've chosen to use a new publishing service to not only help out the listeners, um, but help me build a brand in my future. So I'm really excited uh, about the direction this thing's going. Um, I've got a special treat for you guys this week. I have with me Mr. Liam Kendrigan. Uh, Liam is an on-the-rise teaching pro out here in the Pacific Northwest, former PGA Canada, Web.com, and PGA Tour professional. Um, he's got all sorts of awesome stories to share from his playing days, uh, and we're going to attempt to scratch the surface for you guys here in the next hour. Um, I hope you all enjoy. So... I'd be remiss if I didn't do um, a little bit of background info before I came in. Um, so I saw you were a walk-on at St. Mary's. So that's where you play college down in California. You're a walk-on at St. Mary's. So tell me a little bit about that. Um, I didn't really play golf much before um, college at all. Um, I was a soccer player. I was going to turn pro, go to England, do all that. Um, I got hurt. So after high school, I have like a couple months off and I started playing golf. Some of my friends were playing golf. Um, I got pretty good. I went from never really playing to I could shoot in the 60s. So my parents signed me up to St. Mary's because that's where my high school fed into. Um, so I contacted the coach. I was like, hey, can I try out? I didn't know anything about it. Um, he said, okay. We, they kind of still did tryouts. This was before St. Mary's kind of got like a top 25, top 40 program. Well, so, okay, so my other thing is, too, when you were playing growing up, like, did you play growing up? Like, no. were you at least, like, like, there was no drive to play at all growing up? Or was it like, oh, I played, you know, I played, I played a couple tournaments, like my club championship, my local stuff. But No, I had never actually played a round of golf before high school, like my senior year. And then uh, those were, like, my parents' clubs that I just found. So I had actually never played in a tournament. My first ever college uh, tournament was a like a college event. Um, so I didn't know what I was doing. It, like, no, I did not practice. My buddies played golf. So after high school is when I kind of started. Um, but yeah, I, I contacted the coach. He said, uh, yeah, you can kind of come to our tryouts. This is, we, they kind of held one. Um, not many schools do anymore. And I asked my buddy for a ride because I didn't have a car at the time and he forgot. So I didn't make it. I wasn't super bummed, but I was kind of bummed. Like, I, I don't know. I wasn't playing a ton. So I wanted to still play golf, so I would take, I didn't have a car, I'd take my bike to the bus station, take a bus into Walnut Creek, and then I'd walk like a mile and a half up the hill to Boundary Oaks Golf Course. It was like an hour and a half each way, the way I was doing it. And I started shooting some numbers, like 62, 63 all the time. So the pro from that golf course called St. Mary's coach and said, hey, you, uh, you need to come look at this kid. So the coach allowed me to come play one round with the team. And I, I think I shot like 60, 70. He goes, okay, you're on the team. It's like, cool. So that's how I kind of walked on. So you understand there are going to be some really irritated people with this story. Absolutely. Like and you're talking to one of them. Yep. Oh, yeah. We would have kids uh, later on in my career at St. Mary's, we'd have kids that were – like top 15 in the country, AJGA won this and that and this and that, and they'd be recruited and stuff. I don't know. I just, it was always kind of the same. They would kind of come and fizzle. Like it, I found that it doesn't really matter what you've done before. Like it's, what are you doing now? So yeah, I understand a lot of people will be pretty upset, but 
That's my story. So here's the thing. Those that know me uh, will know that I am not short of words often. Yeah. Um, I'm, f- I'm finding it difficult to put things together. So my ba- I've played competitive golf since I was seven years old. Mm-hmm. Like, it, there has been no other option. This was always what I wanted to do. And, like, this pipsqueak comes along <laughs> and is just tearing people apart. And then, so this is the other thing, the modesty, because now I've known you for a couple of years. I had no idea any of this even, even, even like transpired at all. Like I had, I had no idea. Yeah. Then what I also, well, this is on like the seventh page of Google. Like I did my research <laughs> before we got here. Yeah. You won like five times. Yeah. Or am I wrong? Was it more? I don't, I, I uh, it was somewhere in there. Yeah. I won some good events. Yeah. It's like Florida state's tournament. Yep. That's a big one. They, I, th- there was an article on the on the Seminole website, which is, was on the I think the ninth page of Google, that said past champion will not be back to defend his title, and I'm I, I think the word thankfully was in there. Mm-hmm. This is ridic- like that's ridiculous, and so so obviously so fast forward now, you finish, you know you finish at St. Mary's, you had no before college you had no even like morsel of an idea that golf is what you wanted to do. And then you have that college career. Well, you have no choice but to turn pro. Yeah. So what, what was that like? I mean, did you go like, well then because this progression, like did you have visions that you would just be, okay, well now I'm just a PGA tour guy probably. Cause I'm got, I got that good so fast. Like what could I do with practicing every day? Like it was my job. Yeah. So it was a cool progression through college. Um, one of my biggest events, and this is kind of all how it built together, I got into the 2003 USAM at Oakmont. I didn't know what I was getting myself into. Um, I got paired with uh, Bajegas and Bill Haas. I did awful. I was so intimidated. You know, I go to the practice green, walk on property, go to the practice green, and I like, go to hit a 10-foot putt, and I hit it like 80 feet across the green, and I hit someone. Like, the greens were 14 on flat spots, and there's no flat spots. I did terrible. But the way I work, I got done with that event, and rather than pouting, I was like, that was awesome. I want to go back. I saw what I did wrong. I said, okay, this, this is just the building part of it. So from there, I would get into some other uh, bigger amateur events, the scratch players, the Sahali players. I finished second my senior year. Like It just kind of built, and I was able to look at what did I do wrong, what did I do right, and it kind of, I didn't really have any idea of going pro until my senior year. Um, I think my scoring, I was like 13th in the country ranked. And then I think my scoring average though was the sixth best. And I didn't get any all American status. Uh, I felt like I should have, but like I had some great events. And so I kind of had that chip in my shoulder and everybody was like, you should turn pro, you should turn pro, you should turn pro. So I was like, yeah, why not? Let's, you know, let's check it out. So I, I did, and it, it was a very big learning curve right off the bat. Um, you know, college golf, it's all set up for you. The coach takes you to breakfast, does this and that, and, you know, it's, you're not paying for anything. All of a sudden, that changed real fast. So it was, it was a cool progression. I didn't know what I was going to do through college, but it, it just it kept going, and then all of a sudden, it was like, oh, I'm actually doing pretty good. Let's go see where I can take this. So that was kind of the goal. 
so obviously right after, um, so graduation, you decided, you know, turn pro. Yep. Um, I mean, it wasn't that long ago, so you, I'm, I'm calling you young. You can, you can appreciate that. Yeah. Um, don't feel it. So what was the next step? I mean, cause I, I you know, you played in Canada. Yep. You traveled a bunch. Yep. Um, how, how did you approach that? Like how did, how are you approaching turning pro? Because you know, there's the guys that like, they want to go about it on their own. And there's guys that, you know, you hear the stories about, Oh, I lived with five guys every, and we went and found the, the 2000 version of Airbnb and yeah. found a place and lived in it. And that was it. Like we did it every single week. What, what was it like? What was your experience like? You know, so many people after you turn pro, you know, you, you, they ask you, oh, what do you do? I was like, oh, I'm a pro golfer. And they go, that is awesome. I would love to be a pro golfer. And I'm just sitting there thinking, man, you have no idea. Uh, my roommates, uh, I had three other guys. Um, one was a, we were college teammates. We were one and two on the team. I think I finished, you just said 13th, and he was probably 25th. So we were both right around... He was the best man at my wedding. Like we traveled a bunch together. The other roommates, one is now won three times on the PGA Tour, top fifty in the world, and the other one is a caddy for a very top player. We were roommates. We were broke. You would, you know, I got through Canadian Tour Q school, so I would go and play. Um, you know, we we'd play tournament rounds for who got to sleep in their own bed. You know, we would come into town. And we'd get the cheapest rental car you could get. And it would take us an hour to get in the car because we had four guys, golf bags and luggage, in an economy car, like a PT Cruiser. Guys were sitting on each other's laps. You know, we'd pull into town and we'd go to the store. My food for the week, we'd get two loaves of bread and peanut butter. You know, if the, if the hotel had a toaster, you got fancy and you got toast. We ate bread and peanut butter. Multiple guys to a room. It was... I mean, at the time, it was awesome. And it would be seven weeks in a row. Um, and I was married at the time. So it was seven weeks gone, spending literally nothing, and then you'd be home for a week or two, and then back out. How do you balance that, like, relationship-wise? I mean, like, were you upfront enough about it to be like, I, this is, I am on the, like, this sucks. Like, I want to, was there a time where it's like, I want to be home, like, I have to be home? Or was it just, I mean, you're not the homesick type. You were always just, you know, this is what you wanted to do. So my wife's very cool. Um, she luckily was with me my senior year. We started dating beginning my senior year. So she understood. I was gone a lot. Like, and when the team would practice, it got very intense. We were a top 25 program at that point. Like, it was intense. I couldn't go do this. I couldn't go do that. Um, so she understood it. Yeah, it was tough at the time. And we joke about it now. Like, man... I go on the road for two weeks at a time, and it's awful. We, I was gone for seven weeks at a time. So she was very cool. Um, she would pick and choose. You know, I'd go to some really cool cities, Montreal, um, and I'd also go to some of the worst cities in the world. So she would pick and choose, and every once in a while, grab a cheap flight out and come see me. Um, but, yeah, that was, that was tough. So that's one of the biggest things. I knew a bunch of guys who their wives were not cool, and they fizzled out early because it was like the constant arguing, and they'd get homesick, and they'd feel guilty. Mine never made me feel guilty, so I got lucky with that. So that's a hard balance if you're in a relationship. Kelly, I hope you, I hope you hear that. I hope you're taking notes. <laughs> it's tough on both ends because you're usually somewhere else. You're usually 
time zone can be drastically different, but you have to kind of make an effort. But it was also awesome because most of the guys would go, I mean, if you think about it, you're with a bunch of guys that you're friends with, you're in a random hotel in the middle of nowhere. Most guys would just go out partying and drinking all night where I'd be on the phone for like an hour with my wife, which kind of kept me, I didn't have that urge anyway, but I was not the guy who was throwing up on the first tee the next day because Cancun was too much fun that night. I was on the phone with my wife. So that was good. Well, that's, I mean, that is good because like, that's, that's the thing. And the, the popular thing these days is to hear stories about, oh, like this is what mini tour life was like. It was crazy. You know, I yep. like, oh, we, there was a, I'm, I'm able to reference another podcast I heard. Very, very popular. Um, no laying up. He had, he had Joel Damon on. Yeah. And, um, he was telling a story about like his Canadian tour experience was that it was him and two other guys and they just absolutely went nuts for a little while. And then eventually, I mean, I think you hit a point where you're just like, okay, I gotta, I gotta either decide if I want to play golf or go home at some point. Yeah. I mean, they were talking about, Oh, we stay out till 7am. The guy, one of the roommates was tied for the lead that week and he, his tea time was nine 45 and he just showed up to the tea, did not win um, as one would imagine. But yeah, I mean, like those are the stories that people tell, and I, I, I always wonder. Like, there are all, there has to be guys that like you come to a point where you realize like this is, it's a job eventually. Like, I, I can't continue. But then there's like the some guys that just want to keep keep going with it. There were some guys like Joel. I played a couple times with him. Dude was different. Um, there were a couple guys that were different. Um, Graham Dillette. To this day, if his back did get hurt, he was unbelievable. But guys that were just different. But then there were like, you know, 150 field event. There's like 100 guys that are just, we call them also rants. They're just there. Like they got through Q school, cool. They kind of grounded it through, but they were kind of okay. They were the ones that seemed to just kind of go out and get hammered. And I, every once in a while you wouldn't have, you know, my other roommates would go off to different events. So I'd have a different roommate. Guy hadn't made money all year. I think we were in Cancun. Hadn't made at an all-inclusive resort, which is trouble. Hadn't made a cent all year and gets like, he's going into Saturday tied for the lead. He stayed out the entire night, same clothes, went to the first tee, hammered, and shot like 85. And there's thousands of stories like that where the guys, you know, they were basically on this tour because they were pretty good at golf, but they just wanted to party. A ton of that. Well, yeah, and there's a thing too, it's like, it's funny, you know, people talk about, um, I mean, I guess the mindset is you play college golf mm-hmm. and all the things you give up for college golf, you're independent now. Yep. And it's the, hey, like, we're all buddies. Let's go, let's go be in the fraternity that we weren't in. Yep. Um, but, I mean, there's, there's more to it. I mean, like, like, you've told me some stories in the past and I'm, I am excited for other people to hear mm-hmm. them. Yeah. Um, because mini tour life, I mean, it, yes, it's media prediction or like media representation of professional golf is what top pl- golf courses on the planet. Guys are staying in big luxury houses, you know, <laughs> yeah. there's thousands of fans there. They've got sponsors all over their clothes and every club in their bag is, is paying them, you know, 10 grand a week and so forth, you know, do the math on 14 clubs. But the reality of getting to be one of those people, like the pursuit is worth it because the golf is why everybody does it. It's incredible experience. But 
what is the pursuit really like? Like, what, what was your experience? It's crazy. You go to some very interesting places. You get more experience. Uh, times abroad, like Mexico, for example. Like, first event of the year, we're all trying to make it. Uh, I remember we were playing, I think it was in Mazatlan. Group ahead of me, it's their f- first event of the year. Group ahead of me, uh, guy tees off. One of my buddies, guy tees off, um, hits ball right down the middle of the fairway. You know, they're all walking their ball. Hits a second shot. I think he hits it on the green. This is a long time ago, so I, I think he hits it on the green. All of a sudden, his caddy starts running. And I'm like, man, that is awesome. Look at that caddy going. Like, he is booking it. It's like, that's a good caddy. Car pulls up on the road behind the green. Caddy jumps in the car. See ya. Guy's bag, gone. He's just standing there like, what? What, what, what do I do? Wallet's gone. Key, like everything's gone. Stories like that. I mean, it's, it, we were, I've been to some interesting, so I've been to Culiacan, Mexico. We had an event on the Canadian tour there. It's the drug capital of Mexico. Uh, they wouldn't let us leave the hotel room. Uh, so basically, guys didn't eat that whole week because the restaurant couldn't keep up. Um, every group had armed guards and that's a couple times, you know, uh, Medellin, Colombia, armed transport everywhere. You had your own guy with a machine gun that took you everywhere. Um, so it's a lot of guys getting robbed all the time. You know, every event, the local area would ask for caddies to volunteer and we'd give them like 50, 70 bucks a round. Well, one of the years, a whole bunch of homeless guys, I guess, volunteered and caddied and at the turn would steal everything out of the guy's back, like take the wallet and the keys and then just take off. So a lot of getting robbed, all that kind of stuff. Um, so, yeah, it's I've got stories for days in terms of one of the years um, we so sometimes the Canadian tour would pro- provide transportation. One year they put all the players we bust from one city to the other. And this was another one in Mexico. They put like every player on one bus and then all the bags on the other. Well, my buddy and I were some of the last to get on. They're like, oh, there's no more room on this bus. You guys go just jump on the bus with the bags. Well, it was like two hours through the middle of nowhere in Mexico. So it's my buddy and I on a bus with like 135 golf bags. And we realized an hour into this, we're in cornfields with like $500,000 worth of equipment in the middle of nowhere. We can't see the other bus anymore. And all of a sudden, our bus driver stops the bus and gets off. And just leaves. And it's like 20 minutes. And we're sitting there like, we're going to die. We're, we're dead. And a federale showed up. We paid a little bit of money. <laughs> and we were fine to go. But yeah, um, it's, you get to experience some very low times and places. And it's not until you get to some of the bigger events that you're like, oh, this is, this is what it's like. My first nationwide event, back when it was the nationwide, I showed up and I walked into the clubhouse and there was a player's lounge. And I was like, oh, that's cool. You get a player's lounge. There was a full buffet of free food. I think I spent like 45 minutes just eating because I was like, oh, I don't have to pay for food. I, I get more food than bread and peanut butter. This is amazing. So yeah, mini tours is, it's tough, uh, but you have to find a good crew. That's the biggest thing. I mean, a lot of guys, you know, they're the go on it 
at their own types. And then there's the, you know, having the, the groups of four or five. Mm-hmm. What, what happens when all of a sudden the ambitions don't line up anymore? You know, you're four guys that all are, that have, you know, limited status, like you're going and you're playing and what you can. Yep. But what happens when, you know, one guy either is more successful or less successful than the others and is, you're kind of, you're determined, like you're dependent on three other guys all of a sudden. And so like one of them backs out. What is that, what is that kind of like? Or what is it always hunky-dory for you? It was always kind of hunky-dory for me because I always tried to... So luckily, my friends were serious about it and were good players, always kind of pushing it. But there would be times where you'd room with some of the more party guys, and I found that just didn't work for me. I always tried to find the best players and the guys who were really serious and kind of... You'd play practice rounds with them. You'd try and get dinners with them if you were going to go out to dinner. You were fancy that week and you'd made some money the week before. you got to go to dinner. You try and hook up with the better players, the guys who are really serious about it. You know, uh, yeah, it was always, I'll never forget the guys I was rooming with. One of the last years, forget what year it was, I had had the most successful year, and two of the other roommates hadn't played that good. And one of them was talking about hanging it up. Um, we talked him into, no, you got you to keep going. You Just go to Q school. Well, <laughs> he gets through Q school. Cruises. The other two of us don't. He goes to the Nationwide Tour. Cruises. A couple years later, he's on the PGA Tour and winning. It's like, th- that's awesome. So, it, it's, so that's the kind of crew you have to have. You have to, you know, there's too many guys who you watch now that are trying to do it alone, and they practice by themselves, and they're, you know, it doesn't work that's why all the tour guys are all at the same golf course that's you have to play with other great players and you have to push each other and that's what luckily i had that kind of crew when we went on the mini tours you have to push each other so i i need to hear a little bit more it's it's radiating in the back of my head like i know we've passed it but i need to hear more about it so you mentioned the federales mm-hmm are you ki- like are you kidding me you're just in you so you're going from I guess so. It was hotel. It was hotel to golf course, correct, or something similar. You know, uh, resort to resort, resort yeah. to resort. So yeah. you just you're on a bus, yep, alone. So it's you and one other guy, yep, and then, and then the driver, and then golf yeah. bags, and, yeah. and driver, driver. So what? Okay, you're very calm about it. Yeah, I can imagine at the time you weren't. No, pure panic. Yeah, because we real and it was funny because we just realized shortly before like. They're always humming this big, be safe, be safe, good, make good choices. We, we realized shortly before, man, someone's going to want to take this bus. Like, there's so much golf equipment of, like, the amount of guys who had Tourette, Scotty Camerons. Like, there are so many. I mean, you could sell all that stuff like crazy. We're like, oh, this, this doesn't seem like a good idea. And then we couldn't see the bus ahead of us anymore. I was like, oh, no. And... The driver wasn't really talking to us, and I knew, like, a little bit of Spanish, but not much. We're like, okay, we'll be fine, we'll be fine, we'll be fine. And then all of a sudden, he stops. And I'm talking middle of nowhere. And he stops and gets off. And we're like, oh, okay, he's just, just going to go to the bathroom or something. No, no, we just, they just set us up. And, but there was a ton of that. Guys were always having to pay off 
uh, when we'd go to Mexico, it was, you just had to make good choices. And we made a bad choice. We didn't think about it at the time, but we made a bad choice getting on a bus with hundreds of thousands of dollars. Does it become like the unspoken language? Like, was there like a going rate for get get me out of trouble? Like, how, what? Hundred bucks. Hundred bucks. So it was yep. always a hundred bucks. Like you just said. Okay, yeah, it's pretty funny. Are... Almost all the stories. It's about a hundred bucks. They would ask you for what you had in your wallet, and yeah, it was American money. And yeah, here, here you go. No questions asked. <laughs> so that happened quite a bit. Unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable. Well, I want to fast forward a little bit to um, to the kind of the next part of your career. So that was that must have been what two thousand. That was like, like eight, nine. Yeah, eight and nine. Yep, somewhere in there. Um, so I guess the, it was the the end of two thousand nine. Um, there was a car accident. Yes, sir. Um, and from what I understand, it was just like you know hit from behind and yeah. Tell me more about it. I had just so it was down. We lived in the Bay Area at the time. Um, I had just. Uh, gotten through first stage of Q school. I had my best year Canadian tour. I, I was a top 15. I don't remember where I placed, but top 15 might have even been top 10 on the year. Um, I felt good. Like everything was going really well. Um, just finished up an awesome practice session, like probably a couple weeks out from Q school and um, just leaving the club, heading home. And I was at a stop sign and a kid hit me from behind I think the police report says 35 to 40 miles an hour. Um, didn't know my name. Basically knew nothing. Uh, the trunk of my car went into the back seat. Um, so it was, it was pretty big. Our cars were quite a bit apart. Um, and from that, I got two bulging discs in my neck, just rattled the whole right side of my back. Um, I had a headache for five years. Um, so it was, it was pretty bad. Um, I couldn't play golf, so I did rehab and stuff. And I couldn't go to Q school. Um, the, basically, I took a year off. Um, and then the Canadian tour gave me my exact same status back. Usually a tour will say, oh, it's a medical year, you have this. They gave me my same status back, which was awesome. Um, but I... You know, I was ex- I, I had great practice at home, and you know what people don't realize, especially coming back from an injury. What people don't realize about pro golf, especially mini tours, you know, Monday or Thursday through Sunday golf, that's kind of the easy part. You have to travel. You have to. You're in another bed. You're in a different car. There's practice rounds. There's all this stuff that adds up. So I went back out and I played, and I would. I just remember like the first four events, I'd be in the top 10 going into Saturday. Um, but by Saturday, I was broken. Um, and w- what was happening is I'd get these pinched nerves from the discs in my neck, and I couldn't feel my right arm. And it would go completely numb. Um, I couldn't raise it. I couldn't do a push-up. And I just, one of the last events I ever played was I went to, I got an invite to uh, an event in Colombia. Um, that it was co-sanctioned between the European Challenge Tour and the Canadian Tour. So I went, and I was playing great going up to that. And I got there, and I could barely lift my arm. I played well the first day, and then I just, my body kind of just shut down. 
Um, and it was tough because body shutting down, trying to stay alive. You know, there's guys with machine guns everywhere. We couldn't leave anything. I couldn't go to get like a massage or anything or get chiropractic or anything. So it was, that was the kind of the point where like I'm, I'm in the middle of another country far away from home and I can't move like this. This is brutal. So that's kind of when I was like, this isn't fun anymore. And even to this day, like I'll go and play in some of our majors, which are multiple day events. Usually by the third day, I'll start to really struggle. Um, between a practice round and the third three rounds, it's just the body starts to shut down. So it's, you know, every once in a while I get asked, hey, you want to go back out and try and play? Deep down, yes, but I know that it's not, it's not, it was tough to be on the road in the middle of nowhere away from your family and you just, you knew you couldn't do anything. And I'm scared of that. Uh, every event I go to that's in the back of my mind, is this going to be the one that shuts down? So I, 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 now I get a couple epidurals a year. So they go through my neck into my back. I'm laying on my back and they go through my neck for nine minutes to make it so that I can feel my fingers, I can feel my arm, I can walk. Um, so that was, yeah, the, kind of the, towards the end was I was so excited to go back out and I put in so much work and then it kept happening where I'd be playing great. And then Saturday comes around, moving day, and I couldn't move. So that was the end. Wow. Um, I mean, and, and through the periods you know, of time off, too. Yeah. I mean, how, how, did you, how did you approach each week mentally? I mean, because like, obviously, you know, the year of rehab, mm-hmm. um, people talk about... When, when golf is going well, you're in a groove. And the, the only thing you want to do is the next Thursday can't come soon enough. You, yeah. can't, you, know, you can't get back out on the course. You can't, you know. And then you, ha- you go a year without competition. How do, you, how do you go about resetting? Like what, I mean, what, what can you say to yourself in order to reset and just in, approach each week as open-minded as possible? You know, especially knowing that your body's not in, in the best shape it can be. Yeah. That, that was tough. Um, for me, I'm very competitive. Um, for me, it was tough at the beginning, and then I, I started not getting phone calls anymore. Uh, my agency dropped me. Um, all the guys that I was talking to on like a weekly basis about golf, I didn't get those phone calls anymore. Um, I felt alone, and then I pushed it. So instead of like shutting it down and getting upset, why I was able to get better faster in golf is because I had a mindset of like, all right, game on. Um, I'm going to push myself. I'm going to work on what I need to. I had played competitive golf long enough that I know what it takes. You know, I could see the things evolving in my game. I pushed it really hard. I knew the body wasn't always there. So that was the hardest part of trying to get fit, trying to get, how do I push it and get better without ruining my body? Um, and that, you know, I'd get feeling really good and then everything would fall apart and I felt like I had to start over again. That was the toughest part of like, you feel like you'd get close again and then it would just shut down. Um, and that was a tough year because I was basically, I felt very alone. So rather than having everybody rally, it was kind of like, Oh, you know, get better. And then 
no phone call. And that's the toughest part about it. I mean, like, in working with a team, so thinking back to your soccer days, an injury, you have, you have, an, you, in soccer, you have 10 other people yep. to at least share your situation with, that are aware of your situation, that want nothing but the best for you. They want you to perform well. They want, because it, it impacts them as well. Yes. With golf, I mean, it's, a, it's the solo show. Yes, it is. And, you know, we've all, especially, you know, any of the college players listening, like we've had ups and then we've had some downs. And yes, yes, it's different because you have a team, sort of, and you have, you know, a, a girlfriend or a professional spouse. You don't, you can, and family, you can't share that with them. You, nope. It's not the same. It is not. So that feeling of alone, it's like, yeah, you have these people, but you don't, you don't, you don't know how to put that on somebody else. No. And that's like the mental aspect of, or like the mental health aspect of playing golf and why that's becoming such a common talking point. I mean, who do you share it with? You can't. No. Um, and at some point, um, you just kind of decide yeah, you have to. You have to do what's best for yourself, and you have to do what's best for the people around you, and it might not be playing. Yeah, and a lot of it, you know, I, I talk about having a crew and traveling together. They are there for you. Like, they, you're all, you know, pushing yourselves in practice rounds, and you're doing this or that, but at the end of the day, you care about yourself. Like, it is a solo sport. Yeah, you're rooting for your buddies to do great, but you want to beat everybody's brains out. So yes, uh, I want to train with guys and you know get better, and I want them to get better. But I want them to get better so they could push me to get better. So yeah, when I got hurt and everything, it, you know, they all wanted me to get better, but they move on, and they had to. Mm-hmm. So that was a tough part. And then what was funny was it was towards the end too. I would notice when I went back out. Um, when I was in college, everybody called me Doc. Because I could fix your swing. It came kind of easy to me. I'd see what you were actually doing wrong. Everybody worried about these, all these little tiny things. And I was like, I don't know, you're just doing this. And it, it, I just would see it. I, I got it. I noticed in my last, when I came back, that I'd be playing with guys. And I'd be like, I, I could make him better. I could fix that. And I was actually paying more attention to other players' swings than I was my own game. And it was like, okay, well, uh, is this a path? Is this something I need to do? Because I still love to play. I still play in a ton of events. But it's, I love the, the swing, but I also love the coaching because they're two, having a good golf swing and being a golfer, very different things. I, I, I know it's a sight segue on it, but it, I remember walking up and down the range when I first turned pro at some of these Canadian tour events. And these guys hit it so good and so far. I was like, oh my gosh, they're so good. Oh, I'm going to get just destroyed. And I would play the round and I would beat them. Well, well, how? The guy hits it so good. You'd watch these guys on the driving range. They'd hit it like... No big deal, 300 in the air. I don't got 300 in the air. I got like 270 maybe if I stripe it. Maybe. And nothing went offline and their swings looked perfect. And I was like, man. Then you get done with the round and I beat them by like seven. It was like, I I soon realized 
there is way more to golf than just a golf swing. And so that was, that's what I like to bring now is not just the teaching aspect of golf swing, but how do you play golf? How do you make mistakes? How do you get better? How do you score? How do you learn from a bad round? So that's kind of what I got into. Well, and so the biggest thing too, so many guys talk about working with sports psychologists and working with all sorts, I mean, meditation and hypnotherapy and the every everything imaginable. Yep. Or, you know, for a lot of people, liquid courage and yeah, yeah I mean, whatever. Did was there something for you? Were you working with anybody? What what was what kept you sane out there? So for me, I didn't work with anybody. Um, again, I'm a competitor and I like to learn. I, would, I was very good at learning from rounds. I, if you, even to this day, if I have a terrible round of golf, someone's like, oh, that wasn't very good. Um, uh, you know, I was missing my left to writers. I was able to break down what I did wrong and I could think big picture. Too many people think small picture. I always had a plan. I always knew where I was going. If I saw, as a pro golfer, if I saw improvement from year to year, I was going to keep going. Um, so that kept me, it was the constant pursuit of getting better. And I would, I will never forget, I'm going to bring up Graham Dillette again. I was there when he had a year where he won like seven times. Guy was unbelievable. It was just different. Every once in a while, a guy would come through that tour and you'd just be like, all right, please leave. Just graduate, win your money title, just go. He was that guy. But you'd watch how he'd approach rounds of golf. Everybody's out there beating balls. He would show up with a wedge and a putter and just walk the golf course, hit chips and putts and do all that. And I remember we were paired together in the lead on a Sunday and we were, you know, coming up to it. And he goes, hey, I was like, ah, we'll see how it goes. And he just, it just takes one good day. I was like, he was just always in it. He was always looking for the bigger picture and getting better each day. So even when I struggled, I was able to find, what am I going to get better on? What am I going to do well? And what am I going to grind through? Because that was my favorite part was not hitting it good. I loved skanking around the golf course and shooting 69 and being paired with a guy who striped it and shot 74. That was my, I loved that. I loved being able to push through. And, you know, there's so many guys who are looking for perfection now and so many guys who work with, you know, the, the mental aspect of it, sometimes you just have to turn into a grinder. Sometimes you just have to, what can I do today to get the ball in the hole? So it's not always searching perfection. What is, what's your miss? Can you skank it around the golf course and shoot a good score? There, you know, it's in a pro round of golf, you can lose it by, can I take that 74 that will take me out of winning a golf tournament and turn it into a 69 and keep myself there? So that was the, that's what kept me in it. That's, I'm just a grinder and I love the, what, it's about a score at the end of the day. I love that. Well, yeah. And so, um, I'm comfort, I'm happy to say that I've worked with Liam now for a couple of years and that's something that I've noticed. He's a big advocate of the, the swing your swing and, you know, and just take it one, one step at a time and then be done, play to your strengths and, and just go about it. And there's so many teachers that are teaching their, their magic philosophy and yep. their, and you know, the rinse and repeat for every single golfer because they believe that that's what a swing should look like. Yep. How, so, I mean, you've mentioned going up and down the range and just saying like, oh, wow, these guys stripe it. But 
You know, like when you're when you're teaching junior players or ten handicaps or whoever it be, or college players trying to turn pro, not going to name names. What you know? What goes through your head? Like, how do you approach each of them? So we're trying to make your swing repeatable. We're trying to take all. What are your tendencies? What are your misses? Because that's at the end of the day, I'm looking to make not just your best shots better, but I want to make your misses get way better too. The swing doesn't have to be perfect. And in fact, a lot of the best swings nowadays aren't perfect because they'll have a miss. You don't have a two-way miss. A lot of these guys, I don't, I don't have near, my swing is not perfect. Not anywhere near. But I don't have a lot of dispersion. I'll, hit, I'll go multiple weeks hitting 18 greens around and 14 fairways. I don't miss the ball right. Oh, Cool. When I really learned, I'd be in Q school or massively under pressure, that's when I would miss it left. I learned from that. So I love to take players, what's your tendency, what's your miss? My players, especially some of my top players, if you come in after a round, I say, oh, you know, how'd it go? How was assessed? The, oh, I didn't putt good. I get mad. That's not how, oh, I just didn't putt well today. Well, what did you miss? Left to riders, right to lefters? That's how you get better. You don't, oh, I'm, I'm just not a good putter. Okay, that's 99% of golfers, even pros, even top college players. What are you missing? What's your tendency? What's your, you know, how, do you, how are you going to get this better? I would have made it sooner. I would have made it, I believe, if I putted left riders better. That was always my tendency. So I realized that my strength was right to lefters. Therefore, I built a plan around it. I hit a draw with my irons. Why? Most greens are back to front. If I hit a draw right of a pin and I end up right of the pin, what's my putt? I've got a right to left putt. I tr- I'm not just hitting golf shots. That's, that's why I hit a draw. Because I could aim right, bring it in, usually it finished up right. So I knew my tendencies. I was always trying. I didn't miss the ball right. And I liked right to left putts. So I built a game plan around it. I, you know, I had a dinner early on in my career with two of the Hall of, Hall of Fame golfers who... I asked, what's the difference between a good golfer and a great one? How do you really make it? And they said, you have to be unbelievable at something. You have to have a strength. You look at all the top players. A lot of them nowadays, it's length. They just bomb drivers. But you have to be really good at something. I wasn't super long. I was very straight off the tee. I became a phenomenal iron player. So what I'm saying is I would learn my tendencies and what I did wrong. That's what I bring to teaching. It's What's your tendency? You don't have to have a perfect golf swing. Say you didn't have a perfect golf swing and you'd hit a five-yard draw 99% of the time, but every once in a while you'd hit a duck hook. I'm going to show you how to not hit the duck hook. I'm going to show you how to be confident with that. You know, when you come to me and you say, oh, I didn't putt well, what does that mean? You're not going to get better just saying I didn't putt well. I'm going to go work on my putting. Awesome. That doesn't mean anything. Are you missing right to lefters, left to righters? Are you you know, pulling short putts. Are you doing this? That, then you could, don't have to be like, oh, I'm not a good putter. You could say, I'm just not putting my left or right. Right. Now, that's what I'm doing wrong. Imagine you said that to someone when they say, how's your round? Ah, my approach shots inside 100 yards weren't very good, rather than I suck at wedges. That's the difference, and that's what I want to bring to people. Now my players, even at 20 handicap, they're learning to assess rounds. How do I get better? How do I attack misses? And in the meantime, we'll also work on their swing to get them longer and straighter. Uh, you referenced Graham Dillette a couple of times. Um, 
you know, going up, going, going through, I mean, you started playing later than, than most as yeah. we've established. Um, looking back over your career, were there any guys, um, you know, whether it was family, whether it was, whether it was guys you played with on tour, um, that, that really, that influenced you, that, that pushed you, that drove you, were there any guys that, that stood out? So, um, there were a couple guys, you know, you'd, Graham Dillette, I, I know I'm harping on Graham Dillette. It, he was just impressive to watch. It was 300 yards down the middle. The way he carried himself around a golf course, there was just confidence. And so he was one that you'd kind of like, oh, I'm going to pick his brain a little bit. But honestly, early on, there was a, uh, and this was while I was still in college. Um, I didn't say how I got pretty good fast. Rose City Golf Course in Portland, Oregon. It's a muni. It's a great muni, though. There were money games Fridays and Saturdays. All the best players in Portland would show up at this muni and play against each other. Derek Crossgree was a pro, uh, just a club pro. I'd never beat him once. I was top 15 in the country in college, and I'd never beat him once. I shot 60 and didn't beat him. I learned, uh, I would play against him every Friday and every single Saturday, and then we started practicing together. That was eye-opening to me. It was, I could push it as hard. It was great to have someone who just, I would play great rounds of golf and get beat. That was, not only did it kind of push me to get better and work really hard, but it also made me realize winning is hard. Uh, you know, you have to learn how to lose really well in golf. So that, he was a big key that really opened my eyes to, and it was, you know, we would go to a couple events outside of Portland and I would be the one to beat him. So I beat him when we would go to events outside of the comfort zone. And I realized, okay, there's, you know, playing. And then there's when you get uncomfortable, he was a huge one. Um, And then another one was the first real coach I ever had with Jim Burke probably the best iron player I've ever seen. After college, that's when I decided, you know, to get next level, I need to work a little bit. And the coolest thing he ever did, and I can't do this now as a teacher, I want to with some students, coolest thing he ever did, he goes, Liam, he's like, we're gonna, we're gonna work together, but I want you to tell me what you've done. And I kind of listed off, you know, I did this in college and this, and I've already won a couple times as a pro. And he looks at me and he goes, you haven't done S-H-I-T. He's like, this is uncensored. You can say okay. you, you haven't done shit. You suck. Nobody knows who you are. Don't think you're good. And instead of being like, oh, you know, fuck this guy. I was like, that's awesome. I haven't, I, I suck. I've done nothing. And he pushed me and I had that mentality of there are so many, I, I watch a lot of college kids nowadays who have shot, oh, I shot like 68. I was like, awesome. They haven't, but they just walk around like they've already had it made. You have to work really hard. That was a big eye-opener to me when he said, you suck. No, this is starting over. You're the rookie. You, you got nothing. I was like, that is awesome. And that's when I went to work. So he was another, he was huge on me through most of my career. Um, so that was, those were the big guys that pushed me. Wow. So thinking back, um, you know, if you were the, the recent graduate again, um, yeah. turning pro, 
what advice would you give to one of those 22 year old guys trying to give it a whirl? You have to go all in. Um, you can't, there's a lot of guys, yeah, I'm going to go down to Arizona. So where everybody else is, and I'm going to get a job working at a golf course, you know, I will be a bag boy and then, you know, to make some money and then go play. That's not how that works. You have to go all in. You have to have a plan. You have to know what you want to do. And, you know, whether it be going abroad, whether it be staying here and doing nationwide qualifiers and trying to get in each week and move up, like you have to 100% give it your absolute best every single day. Um, It's, you know, I feel like I push it pretty hard. And with the recent, you know, Kobe, the Mamba mentality. Man, we forget that. You think uh, you're doing so great, you're doing so great. Oh, I'm good. I'm good for a while. You have to absolutely give it your everything because the difference between college golf and pro golf is just, you have to push it harder. You're 69 that moved you up to the top three and college golf is like, you might be missing the cut. You got to go deep. So you have to push it hard each week and really assess everything. So I would have told, you know, uh, it's cool nowadays to see all the stroke gain stuff, which I don't use a lot of, but like, what are my weaknesses and how do I get better? And I have to work on them every day. It can't be like, uh, you know, I'm going to have a go couple beers and go practice and I'm going to work and do No, you got to push it. There has to be a plan each day and go all in. Good stuff there. Um, this one, this one's going to be a little fun. So thinking back over, and it's hard because there's going to be a bunch of them. Thinking back over your career, were there any shots, like any moments for you that just stand out that you will never forget? 100%. <laughs> one of the biggest ones, and it's actually, I've kept the same putting swing thought to this day. Um, part of what was tough for me playing on the mini tours and I, I'm not going to say uh, again I, I needed more distance to really make it or make it easier um, and then left to right putts would have helped but I was broke um, you know it, you'd go to a tournament and there you know some guy would ask you know what's the cut going to be you, you left you walked away from that person because they were thinking about the cut guess where you're going to end up right around the cut line I was broke so I was always thinking about money um, so that was tough like there would, the shot that sticks out was early on in my career, and my wife doesn't even know this. Um, I had a, it was like an eight foot putt to make the cut in an event. The hard part about that was I didn't have a flight. I, I hadn't paid for flights. I didn't have a hotel the next week. I had nothing. I basically, if I missed the cut, I didn't know what I was going to do. So going into that week, it was very tough. Now, I've got an 8, 10-foot putt. I think it was for birdie on the 18th hole to make the cut. You know, there's grandstands around, and people are eating their food and making a whole bunch of noise. They don't care. But I'm over this putt shaking, and it's a Friday, because what am I going to do? So I don't know why I did it. I just remember I got over the putt, and I said, point your left ear at the hole and pray. So I just pointed my left ear at the hole, and I just stroked it. And I heard it go in the hole. And, like, I will always remember that, okay, that built, because I knew I could do it under the most pressure. You know, you watch a PGA Tour event where the guy's got a putt for third or fourth, and they talk about how much money it is. Yeah, but you still made, like, 100K. 
that was the difference between what am I going to eat? How do I get home? I don't have a flight home. How am I going to do this? That's the most pressure I've ever felt. So I was shaking and I made that putt. I've never forgotten it. I will, to this day, left here at the hole. Um, So that was a huge one. And then um, another really big one, um, I believe heavily in my short game, and I've hit some crazy short game shots, but this goes all the way back to U.S. amateur qualifying. That amateur USAM that I got in an 03, that's what kind of pushed me to get really good. That like I, it was a, it was a dumpster fire. That was an absolute disaster. The 03 USAM, I played awful, but I learned so much. On our 18th hole, I went really long left in the qualifier. I had to get up and down from jail. We're talking like 25 yards, hard pan to a back left pin. I had no shot whatsoever. It was ridiculous. I hit, and I, I just walked up to it, and I was ho-hum, and I hit the highest, spinniest flop shot you've ever seen, and I hit it to an inch. Tapped in. Every once in a while, I think, man, if I didn't get out that up and down, I don't get into that USAM, and then I'm just, would I become one of those cool college golfers that just think they're pretty good and doesn't push it? Like, oh, I'm pretty good. But I went to that USAM and realized, huh, I got some work to do. So that was another huge shot in the career. Last one's... A little less, oh, maybe more thought-provoking. I don't know. Just thinking back over your career, favorite golf course that you've gotten to play? It's, so, again, Oakmont, 03. Yeah, it's got to be Oakmont. Um, it, it's got to be Oakmont. It was, and it's not just the golf course, but I will, it's funny because now I go to a golf course and everybody's like, oh, this course is really hard. I'm like, mm, no, 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 sir. It is not hard. They had four spotters on each side of the fairway. If you missed a fairway, you couldn't see your ball. You couldn't see your ankles. You couldn't see the ball. You were swinging at nothing. Um, the, the greens were so fast. I, it's like putting on a gym floor. So, but it was amazing. The golf course was incredible. I also just, luckily I get to travel around and play some cool golf courses. And I just got back from Aaron Hills not too long ago. And that was absolutely spectacular. But I'm... This probably will shortly change because I'm going to play St. Andrews in April in an event. Um, my great-grandfather, his name's Jock Hutchison, he's from St. Andrews, and he won the British Open at St. Andrews in 1921. He's in the World Golf Hall of Fame, so this will be my first trip there. To It's, it's going to be a cool trip to just kind of not only play the golf course, but walk in his footsteps a little bit and I get to go into the, some of the rooms that most people can't and see his exhibit at the RNA. So it's, I think St. Andrews will overtake. But as of right now, my favorite's Oakmont, followed very closely by Aaron Hills. Is I got to be honest. I'm going to what the fuck, man? <laughs> I like, know. You are, you are the coolest guy. <laughs> and, it's, and it's funny because, you know, me walking on to a you know, college and not really playing before, and then people hear about, I didn't know the great-grandfather story not too long ago. My grandma was like, oh, yeah, you're... Your great-grandfather used to play golf. I was like, oh, cool, thinking he's like an eight handicap. And then she pulls out like all these like trophies and clubs and stuff. I was like, okay, all right. I mean, he's he's actually the reason we have grooves now. He won the British Open with grooves cut all the way to the back of the club. And then the day after he won the event, they changed the rules because he was stopping the ball and nobody else could. So it's, I don't know, it's a cool little story. So hopefully, I hopefully... I think St. Andrews will overtake shortly. My St. Andrews story, 
I was fortunate enough to play um, when I was 13. Unreal. I mean, you know, as good as as good as a 13 year old could be. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to milk this because I need excuses that make me feel better. So coming down, you know, I hadn't played in a few months. Like yeah. we were on on. We took my grandparents. Um, my grandmother traced her lineage back. She found out there was a castle named after her. It's the Luttrell Castle. If anyone goes, they can look for it. Wow. Um, and we, but we were like, we're going to go on this this grand tour up and down, you know, of of the UK. Yeah. And we get to St Andrews. Lucky as all hell. I'm a single. I find a tea time. I get one. I go out. I play. You know. It is what it is. Like I'm, I'm out there just soaking it up, having as much fun. But the one shot I wanted to hit well was the tee shot at 17 yeah. over the corner of the hotel. This thing, I heard the loudest crash <laughs> on the balcony of the hotel that I, I think I have ever heard. And w- so I don't know. I don't know if I'll able to be to go back. Like if I ever, so if, you know hypothetically the tour career takes off open at open at st andrews that will be radiating in the back of my mind no doubt so it's how do i handle that so that's that's my challenge uh i yeah i did my my grandfather or great-grandfather unfortunately did not uh walk the 18th and win but we'll have to see liam thank you so much it's been really fun absolute Um, blast man pleasure yeah, thanks for the help. It was great. The story, there's plenty of them. I mean, I don't even think I'm scratching the surface. No. Um, if you're in the Pacific Northwest looking for a teacher, absolutely recommend Liam Kendrigan. You, well, I don't want to. I don't want to cut him out of you know charging you for the full hour. But within the first five minutes, he's got you figured out. So he's the real deal. Um, get out to Sandpoint in Seattle and go give him a look. Awesome. Thanks, Seth.